welcome to the Saint podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring hope to the people of East London, and I'm praying that you would feel so encouraged by this week's talk. Well, it is a joy to be with you. I love what God is doing uh, in your church, through your community, and it really does feel like that. To step into this feels like stepping into home. So thank you for the privilege of being here for this uh, amazing event and also having the chance to share God's Word with you. I want to talk today about something very, very simple to understand, but very complex to wrestle with. And it's something that I've had to deal with at a very, very deep level coming out of this pandemic. And I want to talk to you today about what it means to really surrender to God, to really surrender. So there's a a passage I want to base this from. This is from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, and it says this, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This may be the ultimate example of trust and surrender in the Bible. Jesus on the cross, willing to hand himself over to the plans of the Father. Trust and surrender. Now, if you research what's happened in our society when it comes to really trusting someone, being willing to hand over yourself into their care, you're going to find out we are living in a moment right now where there is a crisis of trust. In the Atlantic magazine, which is a popular American magazine, They tell the story of the Edelman Trust Barometer. Now, the Edelman Trust Barometer maps out four institutions in society and how countries are willing to trust them. The citizens of the countries are willing to trust them. And they found that very, very recently, trust across all major countries is in radical decline. There should be a picture of it uh, coming up here. And it shows you how badly trust is falling down. Now, the UK, you guys have dropped a little bit of trust. You're down negative one. But what's the least trusting country on the end? The US, that's where I live. There is a crisis of trust down 37%. And I think that we see this because so much of what we have put our trust in has been shaken and it's been shattered. Social trust is broken. They did recent research on millennials and their trust, and they found that only 19% of the millennial generation genuinely trust other people. We've lost trust in our media. We've lost trust in our politicians. Many of us have lost trust in our neighbors. There's been scandals in the church. We've lost trust in religious leaders and institutions. Some people have lost trust in their parents. Some people have lost trust in their spouses. I have a friend who, when we were talking through some of the the fatherhood stuff I was working on, tells me this one memory when he was a little kid and he was swinging on a swing and his dad said, jump to me, jump to me and I'll catch you. And he jumped and then his dad moved out of the way and he hit the ground and his dad said, never trust anybody. 
He said this shaped his understanding of authority and he's wrestled deeply to ever surrender his heart to someone because of it. We are in a decline of trust. But trust is important. If you create environments of trust where people are really willing to surrender themselves, it's almost like a secret advantage. Compared with people in low trust companies, People in high-trust environments report 74% less, tr- less stress, 106%, I don't even know how that's possible, more energy at work, 50% higher productivity, 13% fewer sick days, 76% more engagement, and 30% more satisfaction with their lives, and 40% less burnout. We have to recover this. No, I don't know about you. I struggle to trust people. Have you ever been hurt by someone? You thought you could trust them and they betray your trust? It was really, really hard. I pastored a church in the middle of Manhattan in New York City. And the last couple of years, it's been hard to trust anybody. Can't trust advice on the pandemic, so many fractured opinions. And so I find myself turning into something which I do not like to admit, but it's this, a little bit of a control freak. Are any of you control freaks? Or am I on my own up here? How many of you are sitting next to a control freak? You can feel it because they're jabbing you right now. Don't put your hand up. (laughs) If I'm really honest... Much of what I loved and trusted in has been shattered the last two years. And there's something inside of me that wants to fight and manipulate and work and control to get my life back. And if I'm really honest and I probe deeper in my heart, I may not just be a control freak. I may have an idol of control that has snuck in there the last couple of years And it's dictating to me how I should live and what it is that I should do. And so I want to to get rid of this idol. I want to be somebody who's willing to trust God. I want to be willing to be somebody who fully surrenders everything I have to Him. So I want to give you just a quick little diagnostic test to see perhaps if you've got any control issues in your heart that you need to surrender to God. Here's the first test. Do I trust God and surrender the timing of events in my life? Or do I try and control time? Most of us live in a world where we're given a script when we're little. It's not explicit, it's subtle, but we're given a list that tells us what should happen at certain moments in our lives. It's like a a chronological map of success. Do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. And if you get to this point and you have these things in place, you're a winner. But what do you do when that script or that map is not leading you to where you think you should be? We can power up and control. I think about Saul in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 13. It's one of the greatest examples of control. And you know the context of what's happening here. Saul is fighting his age-old enemies the Philistines. And the Philistines have assembled against him and his army. And they are so intimidating that the people of God are threatening to run away. 
This is what it says in verse 5. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped at Michmash on the east side of beth And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and the people following him trembled. He waited seven days according to the time set for him by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. And so this is a moment God has told him through the prophet, do not try and play the role of a priest. But the people are beginning to scatter around him and the people are terrified. And Samuel's not on Saul's time frame. And so as he sees everybody beginning to fall away, this is what he says. He says this, Saul said, bring me a burnt offering and peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he'd finished presenting the burnt offering, Samuel came and Samuel said, what have you done? He said, when I saw the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, I said, the Philistines will come. So I felt compelled to offer burnt offerings. And Samuel says this to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, for now the Lord would have established your kingdom forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. You have not kept what it is the Lord had commanded you. And here's the the principle from this passage. Taking things into your own hand to try and seize your destiny won't make it happen. It will sabotage your destiny. Trying to bring about God's purposes and promises in your own timing and with your own power is the fastest way to shut down the work of God in your life. And we feel these temptations all the time. Sometimes we have financial stress and it feels like God's not going to come through. We get in tremendous amounts of debt because we're just so desperate to, to have a breakthrough in a particular moment. Sometimes with relationships, like our our dating schedule doesn't feel like it's in accordance with God's timing. And so we date people who are not believers or not walking with God. And we say, well, you know, maybe I can flirt and convert or maybe, you know, God would understand how lonely I am. We come up with all of these things in an attempt to deal with the loneliness in our hearts. But the result is often disaster. And we have to be willing to surrender the timing of the events of our life Trying to grasp in the moment what God has not given you yet is one of the surest ways to sabotage the work of God in your life. Is there anything in your life right now that you are manipulating or seizing that you know God has said to you, not yet? Trust me. Second thing, sometimes we try and control outcomes. So it's not just the chronology of things, we try and make our lives turn out the way that we want. And so, so often, you know, we can be inside the church or see clips on YouTube or maybe listen to podcasts, and it's all sort of like a little bit prosperity, which is like it's a bunch of out of context Bible promises that things are just going to get better and better and better and better. And so, you know, you're walking around claiming your promise and you're holding on and 
And it could be something from like the book of Proverbs that honestly has nothing to do with you. It could be about like Old Testament crops or something. But we, we said, no, this is what I want my modern life to look like. And sometimes we can lay out our lives in such a way that we say, God, I will only follow you if you give me what I want. So it's a conditional relationship. And what you're saying is not, God, I want you to be God. You're saying, God, I want me to be God. I just want your help. In New York City, where I live, I've lived there the past 16 years. I've raised both of my kids there. I have two adult children now who've left the home. And when my kids were little, they were two and five when we moved to New York. And my daughter was uh, playing in the playground, and my son, who was honestly like a wrecking ball of joy wherever he goes, like the amount of energy that kid had was extraordinary. He was jumping off stuff, and, and it was incredible. And so a mom, we're brand new to this playground, and perhaps like London, neighbors, neighborhoods can be very, very tight. And so if you live in a particular neighborhood, it comes with a very distinct cultural identity. So if you say, like, I'm from the East End, it means something very different than saying I'm from the West End. It's like a totally different world. And so we come from very, very humble backgrounds. But we found ourselves living in, honestly, a very bougie and posh neighborhood. And so we're in this playground, and my son is, like, probably destroying all the manners and habits that these elite parents have put in their kids. And a mother comes up to uh, my wife and uh, as my son's running around and says, oh, uh, you're new to the playground. And she says, yes, yes, I just moved to New York City. And she's like, oh, great, I see your son's about kindergarten age. She says, yes, yes. She said, what kindergarten are you going to put him in? She said, well, I'm going to put him in the local kindergarten. And this mother was like, if you put him in that local kindergarten, it means he's going to have to go to the local school. And if he goes to the local school, it means he's going to have to go to the local middle school. And if he goes to the local middle school, he's going to have to go to the local high school. And Christy's like, I mean, isn't that what you do if you live in a local area? And the mother was like, no. You've got to put him in a private kindergarten so he can get into an elite primary school, so that he can get an elite high school, so he can make it to Harvard or at least one of the other Ivy League schools. And my wife was like, ha, ha, ha. And then she realized this woman was dead serious. And here's these kids running around the playground, and here is a parent saying the outcome of this child's life must be a cultural elite. They must be successful. They must go to the best schools. If we're not careful, we, we can manage. We can say, God, you have to give me the outcomes I want or I'm not going to follow you. And this is such a temptation. This is a little bit of Judas's story, isn't it? Judas who says... Jesus, I want you to be the Messiah in a certain way, and if you're not, I'm out. Uh, is there anything in your life where you are demanding God does something for you or you give up on your relationship with him? And the third area is just the area of controlling other people, which is manipulation. The problem with people is they don't do what you want all the time. Aren't people complicated? They're so complicated. The world would be so much easier if everyone around me just did what I wanted. Is that too much to ask? Apparently. David Benner says this, people who live in fear often feel compelled to remain in control. 
They attempt to control themselves and they attempt to control their world. Often, despite their best intentions, this spills over into efforts to control others. Fear also blocks responsiveness to others. The fearful person may appear deeply loving, but fear always interferes with the impulse towards love. Energy invested in maintaining safety and comfort always depletes energy available for love of others. And many times our human relationships break down because rather than loving people and empowering those around us, we try and control and manipulate them to do what we want. And it's often terrifying when you've, done, you've used all of your secret skills and manipulation and the person still says, I'm out, I'm out. And this can put us into some sense into a very, very deep tailspin. Now, these are just human factors that we face, controlling others, trying to control the outcomes, trying to control our timing. But the most damaging form of control and idolatry it's not these areas of our life. It's trying to control God through religious observance. Religious people are often the most fearful, controlling people in the world. And you look at the people Jesus dealt with. Who, who gave Jesus most of his problems? Was it the sinners? No, who was it? The Pharisees. The Pharisees built these systems of control and manipulation. And Jesus had to confront them repeatedly because they thought, because they'd gone through a time of tremendous decline and the Romans were causing them all sorts of problems, that if they just obeyed God enough, they could get God to do what they wanted. And this can be a terrible thing. But if you're only in it for what God will give you when you don't get it, you will abandon him. Several days before this scene in Luke 23, when Jesus is on the cross, you know what happens? The crowds welcoming him, Palm Sunday, and what do they say? Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And at this point, you're thinking, oh yeah, these, these, Jesus is going to build a revolution. He's got the people with him. They're chanting. He's riding in. They're throwing their cloaks on the ground. You're going to be thinking, Jesus is going to go all the way. And yet, what happens just a couple of days later? The same people who are chanting, Hosanna, are chanting, crucify him. What happened? He didn't do what they wanted. And so, so often we think, if I just pray enough, if I give enough money, if I fast enough, if I attend enough Christian events, if I read my Bible enough, what's going to happen is I'm going to live a life so good that God has to bless it. And that's just not Christianity, that's religion. Here's how one author put it. Seeking to control God and thus narrate the details of our own story cuts at the heart of our faith. Christianity is not primarily, primarily a plan of protection against the brokenness of the world, but a relationship with Christ in the midst of it. When we confuse these two, we end up using God as a kind of genie to ward off our existential angst. It's amazing how often this sort of thinking makes us its way into our lives. We were taught as teenagers that if we abstain from promiscuity, God will give us great sex lives and stable marriages. We've been taught that tithing, giving God a tenth of our income, will fend off financial disaster and bring in blessing. 
If we live with integrity and operate according to biblical principles in the workplace, we can advance and safeguard our careers. But God is not a genie. Life is not a blank canvas. And reality is too complex a thing to get our arms around. Using religion in an attempt to manipulate God merely distracts us from the goal of our faith, which is to enjoy an intimate relationship with Him. All of these promises, all of this manipulation. So how do we, if this stuff is in us, maybe as I'm speaking, you're kind of like, can we get another guest speaker, please? Like, can we get someone to talk from Romans 8 on how nothing can separate us from the love of God or something? But maybe the Holy Spirit's just touching something in your heart because it's, it's honestly, it's really hard to go through a season like we've been through and not try and grasp for some form of control. Well, a lot of times Christians say, well, you know what we need to do then? What's the antidote for control? It's like it's obedience. But I don't think it's obedience because obedience is like a wrestling, isn't it? Obedience is like, should I obey God or not? And obedience goes issue by issue. But I think there's something better than obedience. And you know what I think it is? It's surrender. Surrender is the posture of the kingdom. It says, yes, before God asks, do whatever he wants. Obedience has to wrestle issue by issue for the thing that it is. And so you can obey one God, obey God one day and disobey God the next day. But surrender just says, I'm yours the whole time. And here we see Jesus on the cross, on the cross. And what's he saying? Into my hands, I commit my spirit. As Father, you, you, I just, I trust you. I surrender everything to you. So how do we break this idolatrous need to control and really learn to surrender to God? The first thing is this. We have to be intimately connected to our Father. You've got to be intimately connected to our Father. Jesus, it's safe to say Jesus was obsessed with the Father. And his relationship with the Father is the only thing that got him through. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks of the Father 17 times. In the final discourse to his disciples in this particular gospel called the, the Pascal Discourse, Father is found no less than 45 times. In the next chapter in John 17, where he continues his great prayer, Jesus speaks of the Father six more times. And now as he lays down his life, almost the final words on his lips are, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. The gospels open with the Father declaring, you are my beloved son. And the gospel closes with Jesus saying, I trust you, my beloved Father. And it is only that understanding of who we are to him and who he is to us that will enable us to believe that what he has for us is the best things. And this prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, was actually a prayer that Jewish children prayed before they went to bed. And as they were getting ready to go to sleep at night, they would say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit in case something happened in the middle of the night. It was a childlike prayer of trust that trained their hearts. And here is Jesus taking that from a childlike simplicity into the complexity of Golgotha. And yet here he is saying, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And I want to say this, 
that we should spend more time enjoying our Father's presence than we do trying to manipulate the outcomes of our lives. God can give you in a moment what you cannot work for in a decade if he can trust you. So often, God in his love is holding back the things we want because he knows all they would do is further our idolatry and independence from him. But when we're ready, you think about Joseph. Joseph, when he's a young man, gets a taste of his destiny. He has no people skills whatsoever. Goes up to his brothers and like, God showed me a vision. We were all going to bow down to me. Hang on a sec, let me get my special coat. And then he goes in front of his parents and he's like, hey, mom and dad, you know, I'm a bit of a dreamer. Well, God showed me a picture where you're going to bow down before me. And his parents are like, are you kidding me, Joseph? Honestly, mate, you need some people skills. And God just gives him test after test for his heart. And if you were to ask Joseph, like, does obedience bring blessing? He would say, oh, I don't know. It brings slavery and then imprisonment for faithfulness. And then he's in prison and he's still operating in miraculous power. And what happens? He's forgotten about by the people he helps. And what's God doing? Getting his heart ready. Pruning. Doing, getting, getting his motives in the right place. And when he can be trusted, he goes from the prison to the palace in a day with no strategic plan. Because God knows he can actually use him. This is the place where we have to learn to get our hearts right before the Father. And I want to say this, this cannot just be a theological statement. Because so often we're like, yeah, yeah, no, no, that's good. But really we marinate our hearts in so many other opinions. It says in this passage, Jesus called out with a loud voice. So he's on the cross and he's not like, it's not a private prayer. Like, well, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is being crucified, and scholars tell us that he would have been almost asphyxiated at this point. He barely would have been able to breathe. So this is a heroic effort of Jesus. He rises up in agony on the cross, and it says, in a loud voice, shouts to the people in front of him, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And what Jesus is wanting to say is this is a public declaration of trust in a moment that looks like human failure. This is not just a private internal thing. This is a prophetic declaration to everybody watching. And he's wanting him to say, even in a moment that looks like there's no hope that will come from this, I trust my Father for resurrection life. And so we have to be people who are willing to make this declaration the loudest declaration of our life, not just in our hearts, but in our communities. And when cancer comes, we have to be willing to stand up and trust and say, Father, I'm not just doing this in my heart, but I want everyone around me to know that my hope is in you. When financial challenges come, we have to say, Father, I, I'm giving you, I'm putting myself into your hands. I trust you, not my own gifts and not my skill. When relationships break down, Father, I trust you. When our kids run off and rebel against us, Father, I trust you. I'm not going to try and manipulate the rebellious person doesn't feel like they need to trust anyone because they're living in a deluded self-sufficiency. The religious person thinks that God's going to do what they want, almost like a genie because they can control him through obedience. But the real test is just saying, Father, I know that you will ultimately work all things together for my good. 
And I don't know how, but uncertainty with God is better than certainty with man. And so I trust myself into your hands. I read about this author named Brennan Manning, and you've probably heard of him. He's sort of a contemplative Catholic writer. And he writes in such a way that just gets to your heart. To read him on your own, it feels like, have you been following me around? I mean, he just understands the heart and our temptations so clearly. And Brennan Manning, his entire life, struggled with same-sex attraction. So in his heart, he's like, I'm gay, but I do not want to live this out in a way that dishonors God. And so as a part of his like, way of processing this, which is kind of a fascinating thing, he joined a circus troupe of high flyers on the trapeze. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you have been to a circus? Well, if you haven't, you need to get out next time one's back in town. The trapeze, you've got this massive big tent, and then someone's like swinging out, and there's a, there's a person who catches you, and then you're swinging, and uh, you swing through the air, and it's, it's such an amazing thing to behold. They're so high up, and the level of trust, and every now and then they take the net away, and you're like, no, I mean, so much intensity. But he felt like that living by, this was some sort of embodiment of his wrestling. And one of the key insights about being on a trapeze is that when you're swinging from one swing in the air and someone's going to catch you, you have to remain perfectly still. Now, do you know how hard, can you imagine how hard it is to be launched through the air and just be like, catch me, catch me, catch me! You know, how intense that would be. The whole thing is just a moment of complete and utter trust. And for that, that like split second or one second, he's like, you, you see them like synchronizing their swings and then all of a sudden like one person lets go and just hangs there still as a board. And then the other person catches him going to safety. And so I'm preaching this sermon about surrender to my church and And I use this analogy about, hey, we need to realize that, you know, when you're hanging in the air, when you're at a place where you feel like you've got to surrender to God and trust, don't wiggle around, don't manipulate, don't control. Lay there in trust before God. And people are like, oh, John, that was such a great analogy. And I'm thinking, I'm feeling pretty good about myself. So after I give my sermon, there's a line of people who come up and they're like, oh, that was really good, spoke to my heart. I'm a control freak too. You know, you've touched some stuff in my heart. And then some friends of mine I can see at the back come up and they're like, oh, that was a great story. I was like, thank you. And they said, but you've missed a key component of it. I was like, what's that? They're like, we're not going to tell you. We actually getting, are getting trapeze lessons right now. And we want to invite you to come to trapeze school with us so that you can learn the lesson properly, not from a book, but firsthand. And I'm like, I'm in the New York Times building in the theater where our church was meeting at the time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, just, you know, ask my wife. It sounds awesome, great. Don't give it another thought, except my wife's put it in the calendar. And then I realized, what are we doing tonight? It's like, we're going to trapeze school tonight. And it slowly starts to dawn on me, me who hates heights, that I'm going to a trapeze school in Brooklyn 
So we get in this Uber, and we live in Manhattan, so we're so far out into Brooklyn. I'm like, is this a joke? Is this, what, what is even happening? And then I see it, this massive tent in a parking lot. And it hits me. Oh, my gosh, I, I kid you not, it's taller than this roof. And you have to climb up this tiny ladder. And when I walk in, I'm like, oh, there's weight restrictions. I mean, like, I'm an out-of-shape rugby player. Do you, does this thing look like it was born, to, born with ease on a flying trapeze? And I was like, I'm sorry, you know, I think I'm over the weight restrictions. And the guy's like, you're going to be fine, man. We've had bigger guys than you. I'm like, okay, okay. So you go through this little trapeze instructions, okay? And the first time I go up, there should be a picture of me up here. The first time I go up, right? <laughs> the first time I go up, I swing out off this thing and everything I've learned is gone in a second. And you can see, I'm, I'm like, here's what I do. I do a chin up. I'm like, I'm like flying to the air, I'm doing a chin up. Ah! And, I, and they're all yelling, jump, jump, and I can't jump. And it's like this, zing, 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 zing. And then my arms give out, and then boom, I drop. I'm pretty competent in most areas of my life. And this was just so embarrassing. And my wife gets up, and she's like, oh, oh, oh. I mean, it's just like, just effortless. And all these other people are doing flips in the air and getting caught by everybody. And I'm just like gripping it out. And then my friends come up to me and they're like, do you want to know the missing piece of your sermon analogy? And I'm like, I'm strangely open to instruction right now. <laughs> and they said, what you don't understand, John, is that when you're learning to let go, there's a person who's a trainer down the bottom who can see everything. And you have to get all the fear and self-talk out of your head. And you have to listen to that trainer's voice. And then the trainer comes over and he says, how's it going? I'm your trainer. And I was like, can I just hold you for a minute? Can I just? And he says, I'm going to say a word. And the word is hep. Hep. And he says, when you hear the word hep, he says, all you have to do is stretch yourself out and let go and let someone catch you. So the next time I go up, and my arms are so sore. Seriously, I could have had dinosaur arms for a week. Could hardly stretch them out. Lactic acid, like, locked in. And so the next time I go up, and they do a few people before me, and they're modeling it, and I can actually see this. This guy is watching the timing as everybody's learning to let go. And then I, I, I hear, I've never heard this. He starts yelling, hep, boom, they let go. The person catches them. And here's the thing. The skill is in the catcher, not the person letting go. And all you have to do is just hang yourself out there and let them catch you. And so the second, it's actually the third time, but the third time I go up, I'm just like, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, I'm praying in tongues under my breath. I'm building a scaffold in my inner man. <laughs> and I just do it, and I swing out, and I close my eyes. And I've got all I'm listening for is the voice of the person who can see everything. And when I hear it, hep, I let go in midair. 
total surrender and trust. This is what John Ortberg says about the cross. The word trapeze, the little bar between the ropes that is a trapeze artist has to let go of, comes from the ancient Greek trapeza, meaning table. About the only time it's used in the New Testament is when the writer claims that Jesus gathers his friends around the table, the trapeza, what we now call the communion table, and teaches them that he will have to let go of his life for them and that the only way to hang on to one's life is to let it go. Then he climbs onto the cross and lets go. He hangs above the earth for three hours with his hands stretched out, not moving a muscle. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, he breathed. And when he did that, he was saying, and what he was teaching us was about trust. Here's the leap. God comes to you and says, let go, will you let go? Here is Jesus. What is Jesus doing on the cross? He's just saying, Father, I just trust my destiny to you. Father, I trust that you see everything from before the foundation of the world to the second coming. And so I just trust you in this agonizing moment of surrender that as I hang here between heaven and earth, you will catch me and you will resurrect me. And I'm just wondering today if maybe you're a little like me, you get the idea theologically of surrender and trust, but you may be in one of those moments right now where God is asking you to trust that he sees everything in your life. He sees you before you were born. He knows your destiny. He is working things together for you. But he's trying to purge you of that idol of control so that he can give you what he has for you, which is better than what you think you need. And maybe you're here today, and this is your moment of surrender. Maybe you're here today, and it's time to move from giving like a little illustration to climbing up into the presence of God and listening for that voice that says, let go, and swinging out and just trusting that you'll be caught. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. You don't know how you got here today. But you've tried everything in your power to control your life, and it's just been a disaster. Will you surrender your life to Jesus today? Will you just hang yourself out and say, God, I just trust you with my life? Maybe you're a parent. You have a very, very challenging relationship with one of your kids, and you've got to just surrender them to God today. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your finances. But let's trust that God will catch us in the air. One of the lines that I think that has struck me the most is just a very, very simple little phrase from one of the saints. And he says this, often we fail to control, often we fail to surrender to God because we don't believe in our hearts that what God wants for us is our deepest happiness. Sin is a belief that God doesn't want our deepest happiness. And so can we today, just in the privacy of our hearts, just have a moment of surrender? Can we just bow our heads? And maybe this has caught you a little bit by surprise. Maybe you didn't see this coming. But this is a moment just to lay our hearts before God. And I'm just going to pray on our behalf, just a, a prayer of surrender. And if this, is, if this is meaningful for you, particularly coming out of the last couple of years where so many of the things we hold onto and controlled are failing to work. Maybe this is time just to say, into your hands, I commit my future, my relationships, my family, my career, 
And I'm just going to hold still and trust that you will work. So, Father, we come here, and I just want to pray right now that you will enable a loud voice to erupt from our hearts, a declaration that says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit, my heart, my relationships, my finances, my living situation, my kids, my parents, my job. Father, even though we can't make sense of it, even though it feels so challenging, even though it's terrifying, we just acknowledge that we want you to have control. So we surrender ourselves to you, Lord. Here we are into your hands. We commit our, and you just put the word there, the thing you're wrestling with. Into your hands I commit my Father, we want to trust you. Father, we want to want to trust you. And so we pray for great grace. And we ask that you would catch us and meet us in the middle of our fear. We give ourselves to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's talk. If you'd like to find out more, give or connect with us, visit our website, saint.church. Have a great week and we'll see you soon.